The Gospel of John, chapter 18, we'll start at verse 28. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas, who is the Jewish high priest, to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they, that's the Jewish leadership, replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus replied. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. With this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in rebellion. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, We have a law. And according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. 
We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice or a sign prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, that's John, the one who's writing this, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that all was now completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, that is John who's writing, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you may also believe these things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. And then Joseph of Arimathea asks for the body, takes the body, and Jesus is buried in the tomb. And we'll talk about that next week. Let's pray together before we talk about some of the stuff here in this, in this section. Lord Jesus, we do thank you. We thank you that you have not just died for us, but you have left us through your apostles your Holy Scripture, to teach us about what did this mean? What was going on? Why did you do this? Lord, help us now to learn, not just for intellectual curiosity, but so that we could be deeply sobered and deeply encouraged that you are the God of power who submitted to a death of weakness. And may that transform us May that transform us, that we would be like you in our life, that we could worship you, that we could embrace the life of being a disciple and come to understand power 
in a very different way and come to use power in a very different way from the world we live in. We ask this for Jesus and his kingdom's sake. Amen. Really, you know, the, diff- the four different gospel accounts all tell complementary stories about Jesus and what he did and who he was, but different gospels emphasize different things. The gospel of John, when it comes to the crucifixion story and Jesus and his interaction with Pontius Pilate, emphasizes God's sovereignty and God's power more than the other Gospels. It's not that the other Gospels don't believe that, they do. But John is particularly struck by the irony that Jesus, who looks like he is a victim, is actually the one who's in control. And in doing that, teaches us here, not just about Jesus, but about power and how what Jesus did on the cross turns upside down or should turn upside down the way we approach weakness and power. You see, Jesus, we talk about who is the real Jesus. Jesus is the one with real power. And it's seen in so many ways in this passage. I don't have time to talk about all of it, but, 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 but we'll look at a little bit of this. Pilate, you see, is not afraid of the Jews. All through this passage, he makes a mockery of them. He digs at them. He says things like, you take him and crucify him to the Jews. He says this um, back early on here. Um, In verse 31 of chapter 18, you take him yourself and judge him by your own law. He knows very well that they have no right to do that, but he wants to make them say it. He's mocking them. Later, when he calls him repeatedly the king of the Jews, this one that Pontius Pilate has the power of life and death over, he continually calls the king of the Jews to dig in to the Jewish leadership I am the one with the power here. To all appearances, to all appearances, it seems that Pilate is in control. And yet, the reality is, Jesus is in control. The reality is, God is in control. And everything that happens that we've read about tonight happens in accordance with God's plan and in accordance with the things that he has laid out and said would happen in the Bible. God was orchestrating this event. And it doesn't bother us like it should, because we've, we've heard about this so often. I mean, what is Christianity if it's not Jesus dying on a cross? And yet, if you had been one of Jesus' friends following him around for three years, and I told you that what happened to your friend and your leader was what God had orchestrated and God had intended, I think you would have been pretty bothered by that. Because the fact is, we like the idea of God's power when it goes our way. We like the idea that God is powerful when we feel like he's going to use his power in the way we want him to. But for the people that were here, the people that loved Jesus, that watched this unfold, they were, they, were not, they were not feeling 
that God was powerful. They were looking at this situation and concluding that God has abandoned us, that God has let us down, that God has let Jesus down. And that's why this passage is so important for us. That's why it's so important that we don't just know, yeah, I know Jesus died on the cross, and I know that Christians believe that, and I'm a Christian, so I believe that. And, and you just know about it in some vague sort of way. That's why we need to look at the Scriptures, and we need to see again that this event that happens, that we've heard about so many times, is really a shocking scandalous thing. The disciples didn't know what to make of it. And yet I think that little refrain that you read over and over again in this passage, this happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. At times when I was reading it, it almost feels awkward. You know, if you were writing this as sort of, you know, creative writing, you'd probably get bad grade for this because it seems awkward. It just seems kind of stuck in there. And yet, I think that what's going on is John is giving testimony to the fact that the only way that we, the disciples, the friends of Jesus, could make sense of this day, of what happened on this day that he's writing about, was to wrestle with the Scriptures. The Scriptures are the only thing that began to make sense of this senseless day. So Pilate seems like he has the power. And yet as the passage progresses, he gets afraid. You find that he really isn't such a brave man. He really is kind of a coward. What's he afraid of? Two things, basically. He's afraid of physical power. And particularly when he hears that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, he kind of freaks out. Do you see this? It's in um, verse 7 of chapter 19. The Jews insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. Verse 8, when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. Now, the passage has not said that Pilate was afraid. You were supposed to kind of have picked that up. He's kind of trying to pacify the crowd But he's concerned. And the Jews know what he's concerned about because later they're going to use it to work against him. He's concerned about Caesar. He's concerned about his boss. He's concerned that the Jews might riot. And if the Jews riot, he's going to be in trouble. So he's concerned about that. While he seems to have power, he actually is pretty concerned that he may not be able to keep control of this situation. But he's even more afraid when he hears that this man, Jesus, who he has just had flogged, which is not a nice thing at all. It's a brutal, horrible thing to do, especially if you don't think Jesus did anything wrong, and yet you have him flogged anyway? You have him tortured anyway? Pilate is not a man of much integrity, obviously. He doesn't care about justice. He doesn't care about truth. But he is afraid when he hears that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. What does Pilate think about that? Why does that bother Pilate? Because that language to a Roman governor means that this man is claiming divine power. What if it's true? What if he has it? And yet, 
as he interacts with Jesus, he brings him in, he starts to question Jesus, he finds that Jesus really isn't a threat. Now this is pretty amazing because we know from Roman and Jewish historians who wrote about Pontius Pilate and about Herod, who also was involved in this whole situation, both of these guys were very paranoid guys. As a matter of fact, um, one, one person wrote about Herod, one contemporary of Herod, said that Herod's pigs have a greater life expectancy than his children. Because any time that he thought his children had gotten any power, he put them to death. And Pilate did the same thing. He was the kind of guy that if he thought there was any threat whatsoever, he would have you executed. And he hears about Jesus being a guy who claimed to be the Son of God. He's scared. He brings Jesus in, and yet as he talks to Jesus, he's put at ease. And it's fascinating. It's fascinating that he is because Jesus is the one with power. Jesus' kingdom is a threat to Pilate and all that he stands for. But Pilate completely misses it. Pilate is a weak man who's trying to put on a brave show. And you know people like that. You probably are people like that. I'm people like that. Pilate believes that power comes through force, mocking. He he, he mocks the Jews to try to make them, belittle them. He thinks that power comes through keeping people happy. He's doing that all through this passage. Coercion. He doesn't care about truth. He cares about power. It's no wonder he's so insecure. And so wonder, it's no wonder that he's so easily manipulated. Because once you know what it is that somebody's counting on to feel powerful... You have power over them. The Jews know him. He's not easy to figure out. They can, the Jews end up forcing him to do what they want rather than what he wants. But, but Jesus is the one with the real power in this situation. I mean, look at this. It, it comes out in a couple places. At verse 34 of chapter 18, Jesus turns the questions back on Pilate. And Pilate takes it. Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, is that your own idea? Or did did somebody talk to you about me? And then a little later on, this is even more bold. Verse 11 of chapter 19. Pontius Pilate says, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. In other words, God is the one who has appointed you governor. The only reason you're even in this position, in this situation, in this great drama right now, is because of God's sovereign power. So then King Parod wants to explore, well, what is your kingdom? If you're a king, and you, and you admit you are a king, what is your kingdom? And Jesus answered very carefully here. You see, He knows that Pontius Pilate is not going to understand what his kingdom is about. He does not say, don't worry about it, my kingdom is no threat to you whatsoever. Jesus would never say that. He doesn't want to answer yes when when Pilate asks him about his kingdom because Pilate will think, well, then that means your kingdom is like my kingdom and you can only have one. There can only be one sheriff in town, so you're going to have to be crucified. 
That would be for Jesus to say that, to simply answer yes when, Jesus, when Pontius Pilate asks him about his kingdom, would be to play into Pilate's misunderstandings. But he doesn't answer no. He very carefully says this, literally in the Greek, Jesus answers, you say. Pilate says, this is in verse 37 of chapter 18, um, you are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answers, and the NIV says, you are right in saying I am a king. With the literally in the Greek, it says, you say. It's an ambiguous statement, it's a deliberately ambiguous statement. Jesus is neither affirming nor denying. He, in other words, he's saying, I am a king, but I'm not a king like you think. For me to say yes, you would misunderstand. For me to say no would be a denial of what I came for. He says, I came because I came to be a king. He didn't come just to die. He came to set things right. He came to bring a kingdom. He came to bring his rule over all of life. But Pontius Pilate doesn't get it at all. How can this one be a king? This one who I've been able to beat to a bloody pulp. How can he be a king? See, Jesus is the powerful one, but his power doesn't fit Pontius Pilate's category at all. And so he completely misses it. And I wonder, how often do you, how often do I miss Jesus' power at work because it doesn't fit the categories that I think I have. How often do we miss Jesus' power at work because it takes a different form than I want? Or it's working to a different goal than I want? See, I think it's so fascinating how we pray and we always, you know, it's when things go the way we want that we conclude Jesus is powerful and Jesus has answered my prayer. When Jesus says no, we don't seem to think of that as an expression of his power. When Jesus plunges your life into confusion, we don't think that that is something that he's sovereign over. We think he's sovereign over good things that happen. And if we remember, we try to give him credit and we try to give him a thanks. Thanks, God, as we rush off and, you know, enjoy whatever he's brought into our life. But when things don't go our way, we complain or we take matters into our own hands. We refuse to submit to what he's brought or not brought. And we say, well, you know, he's not being a very good king. I'll be king. I know better what I need anyway. But see, here's the thing that this passage has to cause us to stop and wonder how often we miss Jesus exercising his power because we're looking for it in a different way than he really is exercising it. We have to ask that question. I think John wants us to ask that question because this is a question that people who follow Jesus have to wrestle with. It's too easy to think we know what Jesus is doing and what he wants us to do. And one of the great tragedies and great dangers is when Christians just assume what God's will must be. And then we ask him to bless it. And then we just kind of run off without stopping and thinking and considering maybe Jesus' power right now is working to have me stop and sit and just be sad. I was thinking that, you know, this week. How could you not? 
We often, you know, when, when tragedy happens, we want to fix it. We want to do something so that we feel powerful. But maybe Jesus wants us to first stop and just feel sad for the brokenness of the world. Jesus himself is called the man of sorrows. Isaiah 53 talks about how he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Have you ever thought that Jesus' power might be working to acquaint you with grief so that you would come to understand Jesus in a deeper way than you ever have? Or do you think that Jesus' power should only be at work to keep you away from grief? I don't know. All I'm saying is Jesus' power often takes a form and often is working towards a goal that's not our goal and a form that's not what we expect. And sometimes we miss it. And sometimes we cry out to him and say, you're not working when he's doing some of his most powerful works. Does that sound familiar? Have you done that? (laughs) Yeah. God, where are you? Now, this is, of course, what everybody who walked by the cross concluded. That God is not at work in this situation. But, of course, he was doing his most powerful work. When it looked like God was not doing anything, he was doing his most powerful work. And that gets us, you know, into into this next little section. I'll just say something brief about, about this whole thing about Jesus and the great exchange. I, I think this whole thing about Barabbas is really fascinating and very rich. Um, at one level, we're all like Barabbas. To understand what is going on and to understand what Christianity teaches, you need to know this. Christianity teaches that all of us are like Barabbas, the revolutionary traitor, terrorist, if you will, who deserves to die. And what The good news that we call the gospel is, is that Jesus takes the place of the one who deserves to die. Jesus, the one who doesn't deserve to die, dies in the place of the murderer. The great exchange. I think that's why John picks up on this. This is a very rich image here. This is what it means to be a Christian, is to be sentenced to death. And not just to be set free, but to have another one take your place and die the death that you deserve. But there's something else that's really fascinating in this. Why would the crowd choose Barabbas over Jesus? This is a guy who has incited a rebellion. He's a dangerous guy. But I think that the crowd, like the Jewish leaders, recognize that Jesus is the truly dangerous one. It's one thing to let let Barabbas out of jail. The Romans can pick him up again. But Jesus, his influence is spreading. And if we don't kill him now, we may never be able to stop it. And of course, killing him doesn't stop it. Three days later, he rises from the dead. Because as as Jesus himself said, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is on the move and the gates of hell cannot stand against it. Neither can the grave hold it back. Killing Jesus will have no effect in stopping the spread of the kingdom of God. Jesus has no army and yet his influence can't be stopped. 
And within three centuries, Rome itself will bow to Jesus, the King of the Jews. But right now, Jesus, the powerful one, is the poster boy for weakness and defeat. He's beaten to a bloody pulp, and Pilate holds him up and says, Here is the man. To which Christians, looking at this, say, Yeah, here is the man. This one who is broken and bloody, the one who is the Lord of life, bleeding, his lifeblood pouring out. In that is the whole heart of Christianity. He is the man of power, yet not the kind of power that Pilate or the crowd or the religious leaders could see. He is not, his power is not the opposite of weakness. His power is seen in the way that he can take on weakness and submit to death itself. If you're looking at this outline, turn it over. Now, Pilate writes, you know, Pilate's so fascinating. He writes this title, King of the Jews. He doesn't really believe that. He means it as a dig, as an insult to the Jewish leaders. And they know that, and they take it that way, and they protest, and they say, don't write King of the Jews. Write, he claimed to be King of the Jews. Pilate says, no, what I've written, I've written. But here's the fascinating thing. And again, you see God's sovereignty over all of this. What Pilate means as an insult to the Jewish leaders, God means as a proclamation of the truth, of the reality. In a a sense, going out to all the earth. Here you have the three languages, Greek, Latin, Aramaic, all proclaiming the truth that nobody there has eyes to see. Here is the king of the Jews. D.A. Carson, in his commentary on John, puts it this way. Pilate is unwittingly serving God's redemptive purposes. Unwittingly, Pilate himself is serving as a prophet of the king, of the very king he's executing. If that's not God's power at work, I don't know what is. That he's able to take this Pontius Pilate, this governor, who seems to have the power of life and death in his hands, and God can work it so that this Roman governor can be a prophet speaking the truth about the very king he's executing. Now here you have the supreme example of what's called the theology of glory versus the theology of the cross. And it's this idea to Pilate and to the strong and the powerful in the world, what Jesus endures, his death on the cross, proves that he can't possibly be a king. But in fact, he is the king of kings. To the powerful, to the religious establishment, the weakness of Jesus proved that he couldn't be the Messiah. But in reality, in reality, suffering on a cross proves he is the Messiah. In other words, here's the thing. You don't really understand who God is. Jesus said this. If you want to know who the Father is, look at me. But even more poignantly, you will never know who God the Father is until you look at Jesus suffering on the cross. If you want to understand the power of God, look at Jesus, God in the flesh, suffering on a cross when he doesn't have to. It may look like weakness to you. No, 
It's the power of God at work. If you want to see the patience of God, if that seems an abstract idea, look at Jesus hanging on a cross while people hurl insults at him, spit at him, walk by in disgust. He has at his command legions of angels. He can call down at any time to end this. But he doesn't because God is patient beyond what you can imagine. And that's good news. He needs to be if he's going to continue to love you and love me. And he is. And if you doubt the patience of God, look at the cross. If you doubt the love of God, look at the cross. Jesus himself said, greater love has no man that he would lay his life down for his friends. But Paul picks up on that and says, we know that he loved us because while we were yet sinners, he died for us. The love at the cross is not just Jesus dying for his friends, it's Jesus dying for the very people that are putting him to death. If you want to understand the faithfulness of God, look at the cross. God has made a whole lot of promises for thousands of years in the scriptures. And yet, as Paul writes, all of the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ. The faith, as Jesus suffers on the cross, it is the clearest picture of the fact that Jesus and God will never give up on his people, no matter what it takes. See? While it looks like Jesus is being defeated and publicly shamed, because he was stripped naked, you understand. While he's being publicly shamed, in reality, he is defeating the powers and the principalities and making a public spectacle of them, says in Colossians chapter 2. And listen, this should always be the grid through which you look at life and the questions, particularly your questions about where is God and what he's doing. Understand this, the cross teaches us that when it looks like Jesus is being defeated and his cause is losing in the world, in reality, his kingdom is on the move and even the gates of hell can't stand against it. When it looks like God is not doing anything in your life, he's often doing his greatest work. The theology of the cross means that God's kingdom goes forward in ways that look upside down. And it means that when you think about these questions, who is God? What's he like? What's he doing in my life? You must remember the cross and process everything through that. Finally, a couple, couple points. I know we're, we're running. I'd like to be finished about now. Give me just a couple more minutes. I've told you about this, this fulfillment of Scripture, and I wrote a little thing here. What you need to understand is this. When, when John keeps saying this, everything is happening so that Scripture would be fulfilled, One of the things he's proclaiming that's so important for you to understand is that God is sovereign over all things. But what else is being said and is key to understanding the cross is that the people that are doing this are evil. In other words, just because God is sovereign, it doesn't mean the people involved are robots. 
Later, the disciples actually say that in the book of Acts in chapter 4, and I put that down there. But here's what you need to understand. If you want to understand Christianity, you have to know that it teaches, and the Bible teaches, that God is sovereign over all things, and man is responsible, that we're not just robots. And unless you keep both of those things together, the cross makes no sense. If God is not sovereign over what's going on here, then this can't possibly be God's solution to the problem of sin. In other words, if God is not sovereign over this, if God did not plan this, if the cross is not an expression of God's intentionality, then the most that it can be is God making the best out of a bad situation. God saying, oh no, my Messiah is being put to death. Oh, you know what? I could use that. I needed somebody to die for the sins of the world. Oh, this is perfect. I can work with this. No, that's ridiculous. Christianity falls to the ground. The cross makes no sense. It can't possibly be what Christianity claims it is. God's plan conceived before the foundation of the world to reconcile man and God. It can't be that unless God is sovereign over this. This happened according to the scriptures. This happened according to plan, God's plan. The disciples go so far to say it this way in Acts 4. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did, this is a prayer to God, so they're speaking to God. They did what your power, God, and your will had decided beforehand should happen. When the disciples reflect on this, they say, they did what your power and your will had decided beforehand should happen. Yet, the people that did it conspired, and they did it. And so equally strongly taught in the scripture is the idea that mankind is responsible. We're not robots. And if you don't have that, the cross makes no sense either. Well, I wrote that about you. Let me, let me just, a couple, couple last points as we draw this to a close. Look at Jesus as he suffers on the cross. I, I, won't, I won't talk about all these, but a couple I want to make sure you, you see. Jesus on the cross remains fully engaged and present in the moment. You may wonder, what's going on with this wine vinegar that he drinks? He doesn't have to drink it, but he does drink it because it's a stimulant that wakes him up to the reality of what's going on. Jesus faces the cross fully engaged taking on the suffering. He doesn't check out at all. As a matter of fact, in one of the other gospel accounts, he refuses the wine that's drugged that would help him check out. He refuses that drink, but he drinks the vinegar, the stimulant that wakes him up to the reality. In other words, Jesus remains fully engaged and fully present in the moment as he suffers on the cross. Not only that, He is in control the whole time. No one took his life from him. He gives up his spirit. He said this earlier in Gospel of John. I put the passage down there from John 10. But he says it again here. When he decides it's finished, it's finished. And he gives up his spirit. He finishes the work he came to do. 
He finishes the work he came to do as well. It's one Greek word. It is finished. It's one Greek word. And and the English only captures part of it. Here's what you need to know. This is a word that's used of completing tasks and fulfilling religious duties. Jesus is not saying, finally, it's over. He's not just saying, finally, I'm dead. And all of the misery and all of the misunderstanding and all of the frustration that I've had to endure, finally, it's over. Ah, death, sweet release. He is not saying that at all. He's saying, I finished the religious task that I came to do. I finished the work I've came to do. And of course, the scriptures explain and Jesus himself explains what that work is. But you need to understand, Jesus in his very last breath is affirming, I came to do a work and I did it. And that changes everything. You know, really, most of our spiritual problems arise from failing to believe that it really is finished, from thinking that we still have to do something to add to what Jesus did. Either we have to feel bad, or we have to try really hard, or like Chris said, we have to have zeal. And it's no wonder that we're miserable. It's no wonder we're insecure. But let me tell you guys, when Jesus says it is finished, he meant it. He meant it. It's true. And the fact that he rises from the dead three days later proves it. If it wasn't finished, if he still had more to pay for, for you and I to be able to be reconciled to God the Father and welcomed into his embrace, then he would still be in the grave. But he did everything that was needed. He drank the cup of God's wrath to the very dregs. Hallelujah. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that it's finished. And yet, it's only just beginning for us to begin to understand the implications of that. I pray, Lord, that that this week, as we think about our struggles and we think about our questions, that we we would be able to look at you suffering on the cross, saying it is finished, and that that reality would break in to the reality that we're living with. That we would, as we question your faithfulness, we would look at the cross and be encouraged. As we question your love, as we question your wisdom, Lord, all these things that we question all the time, may you you use this passage, this teaching from your word to increase our faith, to help us to believe that it really is finished. Hallelujah. Lord Jesus, help us to worship you, not just with our songs, but with our lives, to live and believe that this is true. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.